Uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Daf, and uh, I'm the pastor here, and I'm going to be preaching in a moment from the book of Zephaniah, and uh, our reading is going to be brought to us by Jason. If you don't have a Bible with you, and you'd like a Bible, Derek at the back would love to bring one to you if you stick a, a hand in the air, um, and uh, then we can play Find Zephaniah, um, which is towards the end of the Old Testament. The easiest thing, actually, as you look for Zephaniah is to start at Matthew, because you can find Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament. Work your way back, you'll go through Hag- uh, through Malachi, uh, through a bit of sort of Haggai and Zechariah and Habakkuk, and then you'll end up at Zephaniah. So it's best to go that way back from Matthew, rather than, or use the index. Have the humility to use the index at the front is another great way to find Zephaniah. Um, as we start this season, Zephaniah, um, before we come to the reading of God's Word, I just want to ask you a few simple questions. And here is the simple question for you to consider tonight. Do you consider that the Bible is God's word of truth? Do you consider the Bible is God's word of truth? Now, if you're a guest or a visitor here, you might need some convincing on that. I guess if you're not a Christian, you might say, well, it's, it's a book of wisdom written by people. You might struggle to accept that it is God's truthful, inerrant word. But for those of us here tonight who would call ourselves Christians... If we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe the Bible is God's word of truth? The word of a good, loving, kind God to his children, his people. And if it is God's word of truth, do you think it should shape the way you live your life? If this is God's word of truth, should it shape what we do day in, day out? Should it shape the way we think about our world? Should we as Christians have what some people would call a biblical worldview? A view of the world viewed through the truth of the Bible. And if we have a biblical worldview, uh, based on what really happened in the past, what is happening today, and what will happen in the future according to the Bible, should that worldview then shape our daily desires, our, our thoughts? Should it shape our behavior? Should it shape our priorities? Should it shape our diaries? Should it shape our dreams? Now, of course, if you're a Christian person, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to spot that the answer to all those questions probably should be yes. But let me tell you, as I've prepared the book of Zephaniah, which we're preaching over the next three weeks, I can say yes to all those questions and look at Zephaniah and see that actually my life says no. I don't live in the light of God's good, loving word to me in this book. So let me pray, and then Jason's going to come and read Zephaniah 1 to us. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a loving God, and that you've demonstrated that fully and finally in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who was the Word who became flesh. And so now as we come to your written word, caused to be written by the power of your spirit working through the prophet Zephaniah, please, will you speak into our hearts? And as you speak, would we understand? Would we listen? Would we accept? Would we obey? For the sake of Jesus' name, amen. Zephaniah 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, 
during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place and the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out, all who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And in the Church of England, we say thanks be to God, but we might not feel Thanks be to God. Can you see why I asked you those questions before we had our Bible reading? Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Zephaniah tells us where we are in the history of Israel. Zephaniah himself we know very little about, but the word of the Lord comes to him during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was a good guy in terms of the kings of Judah, but his predecessors, Ammon and Manasseh before him, were utterly disastrous. In fact, it was in Manasseh's reign, the level of idolatry and evil reached such an extent that we read this in 2 Kings 21 verse 2. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hear of it will tingle. So we know that's the background to Zephaniah and the young king Josiah is on the throne. We're probably therefore in about 638 to 628 BC, just for the beginning of Josiah's reign. And Josiah, in his reign, has a, really a reformation. He, he finds the word of God. Perhaps even he's influenced by the preaching of Zephaniah. But whatever Josiah does, God's judgment is coming. Uh, yet as we read... Zephaniah. It's something bigger than just Judah, isn't it? It's something bigger than Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, arriving at 597 BC and wiping out the city of Jerusalem. This is what Zephaniah is about. Have a look at chapter 1 and verse 2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. See, what Zephaniah is writing about is not just Judah, but what the Lord Jesus promised when he said he'd return to judge the world. You see, we like to write off the idea of God's judgment as something you find in the minor prophets of the Old Testament where there's blood and thunder and a sort of Stone Age God. But the problem is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaks of judgment in the Bible more than anyone else. And so he says in Matthew 24, verse 30, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. You see, literally... When Jesus returns, it will be dark. They will see the Son of Man coming on the glory of the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So as we read Zephaniah, it's important we understand how you look at an Old Testament prophet. I've got a little diagram for you. You should have had an outline on your seat that will help you to know where we're going. And on that, I've got a diagram about how we think about applying Old Testament prophecy. You see, the Old Testament prophets are given a picture of the future by the Lord. But it's not that, as we look at Zephaniah, certain bits are about Judah, and certain bits are about Jesus, and certain bits are about his return. No, what it is, is a whole picture. It's as though Zephaniah is is looking at a mountain from the distance. And that mountain in Zephaniah is called the day of the Lord, the, the day that God brings judgment upon the world. But but as we move through the Bible's history to that mountain and we come up to it, we see actually what Zephaniah has been talking about is a mountain range. There's one mountain and then another mountain and another mountain stretching away from him. From the distance, it looks like one mountain. But closer up, you see this application in the life of the nation of Judah uh, over the hundred or so years to follow. Then there's application as Jesus comes, the Lord himself, to visit the earth for the first time. And there's application as the Lord Jesus returns to judge the world in all his glory. And so as we work through Zephaniah, we'll be seeing application in all those three ways. Now I can tell you that none of the books of the Bible, I think, are any more brutal than the book of Zephaniah. But actually none of the books of the Bible are any more beautiful. In chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see the dark terror of God's judgment But in chapter 3, we probably have some of the most beautiful descriptions of the glorious light of God's grace. These are hard truths, but they are truths. And so we're going to start with a declaration of the end. Here's the first thing to see from Zephaniah 1, that the Lord's judgment is total. The Lord's judgment is total. Did you notice, as Jason read, 
what it sounded like in verses 2 and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away birds in the sky and fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. It's like creation in reverse. The face of the earth, man and sea, the birds of the air, the the fish of the sea. Creation is being wound up. And do you see what the Lord says he'll do? I will sweep away. I will sweep away. I will sweep away. It's reminiscent of that great judgment we saw in the Old Testament in Genesis 6 to 9. As the Lord floods the earth, he sweeps away all that is wicked and evil. The face of the earth wiped clean. Now, do you believe that's true? A day of total judgment. Because that's what God promises here. The Lord all the earth will hold his creation to an account. There'll be nowhere to escape. And can I say now that a a world where God doesn't judge is a far more frightening world than where he does? Because that's a world that just goes on and on and on with the evil we see day in, day out today, never ending. The only hope for a world where God doesn't judge is the human race. And I don't know about you, but I'm not keen on pinning my hopes on the human race. But the real shock of this opening section is not that God judges the world, No, you can imagine the people in Jerusalem listening to Zephaniah's words of prophecy and thinking, that's right, Yahweh. You get stuck into the nations. They deserve your judgment, but we're God's people. And then we come to chapter 1 and verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. You can feel the shudder of outrage. But but judgment always in the Bible begins with the family of God. And Zephaniah here, he's not speaking to any old nation like, you know, the United Kingdom. He's speaking to God's people. He's speaking to the very people God has invested his promises in, who's given his love to them, his patience, his mercy throughout history, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness. But look at the record of God's people. Verse 4 again. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests. The the priests themselves, the ones charged by God to teach the people, have led them into pagan worship. It's why, by the way, that in the New Testament, the writer of James says this about those who think about teaching the Bible. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach, we judged more strictly. And that's where Zephaniah starts, with the priests. After the priests, there are those who've engaged in worshipping pagan gods. Before then, the Lord turns his attention to those who might have thought they were okay. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and those who also swear by Molech. This is the double-minded. Are they in there in the temple saying, I love the Lord on a Sunday, but just in case they have security and they worship the pagan God as well. And what does Jesus say? He says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Molech. Well, God and money anyway. See, God knows who you're really serving Because spiritual history, that won't help you either. Judgment comes upon those in verse 6. Well, they used to come 
to church. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. They were still Jews. I mean, they'd be okay, wouldn't they? They still lived in Jerusalem and they were terribly nice people. But the issue is, no, they won't be okay. Because all of humanity is judged on one thing. Who you are worshipping now. Who you're living for now. It doesn't make any difference if you went forward to Billy Graham in 1981 at the rally. It doesn't make any difference if you used to be on the JF team. These Jews, they might have been outwardly members of God's chosen people in the past, but actually their hearts are far from him. And now, well, they don't worship him. They're guilty of idolatry and half-heartedness. And the Lord is not fooled by what they say. A day of total judgment. A day when no one on the face of the earth escapes, not even the Lord's people. Do you believe that's coming? Do you believe that's coming? A day when the Lord Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. All appearing before the Lord Jesus, the returning judge, on the day he judges every human being in the world, on how they stand before him on that day. Because secondly, the Lord's judgment is very personal. Look what he says in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. You see, this busy and buzzling people, they just haven't got quite enough time for worshipping their God. So God literally says, be silent, hush, listen. The day when you'll have to give account to me is is near. And the picture here is of God inviting his people to a sacrifice, but they are what is to be sacrificed. It's a brutal image because... Well, as the New Testament says, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And who falls into his hands? Well, verse 8. On that day, the Lord's sacrifice, I'll punish the officials, the king's sons, and all those clad in foreign clothes. Now, they're political leaders, they're kings, they were supposed to keep the people serving the Lord. But they and many of the people, they just wanted to fit in. They didn't want to be different from the nations around them. So they've got the latest fashion gear from Assyria on so they can look like everyone else. That's probably what drives verse 9. There's some translational difficulty with verse 9 as to whether it's referring to the temple of gods or the house of their leaders. It doesn't actually really matter where they are serving. It's how they are serving. And that comes in the end of the verse. Who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. You see, these people were supposed to be God's people. And their lives were supposed to be lived in love and sacrifice for others. But like the gods around them. People around them, they've adopted the culture where power gets you success and lying is totally acceptable. So in the workplace and in the office, it was all about you getting to the top, whatever happened to your colleagues. And if you had to tell a little white lie to cover over your mistakes, that was entirely fine in Judah. But, But I don't think anything 
has frightened me more than verse 12. Have a look at verse 12 with me. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. Though who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. See, the Lord is pictured in verse 10 going throughout the well-known areas of Jerusalem, throughout the successful merchant districts, the comfortable middle-class suburbs. And the people that he comes to punish, the people that he searches out, the complacent. Oh, they're not unbelievers. They're complacent. He says they're like wine left on the dregs. Wine left on the dregs, it looks fine on the surface. It looks like normal wine. But, but when you taste it, that's disgusting. It's useless because it's not been taken off the bitter dregs at the bottom of the fermentation process. And that's what these people are like. You, you know they're like that because, well, they live as though God never does anything. There's no judgment to come. I mean, life is just going to go on like this, day in, day out. What really matters is, have you got your retirement planned? Have you got your house sorted? Because that's what they're interested in. Did you see that? Verse 13, their wealth and their houses. Those are in the end what the Lord brings judgment upon. See, they'd rather trust in the security of their income, the comfort of their homes. I mean, there's just so much time and so much to do There's a patio to build and a holiday to plan. There's a need to get on and sort out the pension arrangements. And and you don't have to get too serious about living for God, do you? I mean, he loves us anyway. It doesn't matter too much what we do between Sundays. Anyway, what really matters is, is Brexit going to affect the house prices? And what do my neighbors think of me? And will my work colleagues accept me? And will my kids get into the right school? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian but the day of the Lord, I know it's, it's in the Bible, but, but it's not really going to affect me. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. And, and I'm too busy, really, with, with what's going on at work and home to sort it out. But, but the Lord does act. He carefully searches through Jerusalem. He is proactive. They might be complacent towards him, but he is not complacent towards them. They thought they were enjoying life and blessing, And then suddenly in verse 13, it is all ripped from them. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. And that's exactly what did happen. See, we're more blessed than the first recipients of Zephaniah. They, they had to take God at his word. We actually know that the army of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar did rock up in 597 BC, did lay siege to Jerusalem and carry off the top echelons of society. And we know that in 586 they came back because the people rebelled against them and they totally destroyed the city. They took all that was worthwhile and smashed God's temple. But but as Zephaniah speaks of the future, yes, he speaks of the immediate fate of Jerusalem, but he is still speaking of something bigger, isn't he? Of the way God judges his people. On that day, when the Lord Jesus judges, it'll be very personal. But what did the Apostle Paul say? We must all appear, each one, before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, what will matter is what we're trusting in then, who we're living for then. And some of the 
most sobering verses in the Bible are just about this issue. They, they come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. Do you know the verses, Matthew seven twenty one? Let me read them to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And if you want to know what that is, will you read Matthew 5 to 7? And Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. But that's why we need to examine our own hearts and repent of anything that could be a false security in us. I think you probably couldn't have a better summary of the gods of Chessington, could you? Than your wealth and your house. And if you think they're not your security, let me ask you. If you had to walk away from both tonight to follow the Lord Jesus, would you do it? Would you do it? Just walk away from them? Because I think so many of us live like what the Christians of old, the Puritans, would call practical atheists. We speak the language of the Bible, but our lives don't really declare the truths of the Bible so often. And that's why we need to have the courage to challenge people who say, I'm a Christian, but they're complacent about it. Who don't prioritize gathering together with God's people. Who aren't daily hungering for his word. And that's why, let me, let me quite open with you. That's why I look out for who is here every Sunday. Oh, I can't know everyone. I quite often get it wrong. And that's why if you don't come for two, three weeks, I might drop you a text or we'll ask someone to drop round. We're asking the life group leaders to do the same. Now, that's because we're concerned yeah, I'm concerned that you might be struggling physically. I'm concerned that you, you might be having a, a tough time in life and, and we should be looking after you. But I'm most concerned about this. That the first time that you're challenged about being complacent for Christ is not the day you stand before the Lord Jesus and he says to you, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. I'm concerned that no one who calls themselves a Christian who has anything to do with our church hears that first and foremost on the day they stand before Christ. If we love them, they must hear it beforehand. And don't tell yourself, it's okay. They repented back in 1981. It's irrelevant. Don't tell yourself, they're so nice they came through our youth work. It's irrelevant. Because in the end, the complacent and the backslider are no better off than the out-and-out pagan atheist. It's why the reason that, that we must be those who ensure that, that everything about our lives points to the fact that we take this day of judgment seriously. 
It's why we, we've got to ensure that we don't let our children's well-being or our success or work or our financial wealth or our concern about our homes make it look like we think the Lord's never going to do anything, good or bad. I think so often we believe in judgment in the same way that we believe in the meteor strike. You know, we all believe in a meteor strike, don't we? And we think that is a possibility. A meteor strike, that's a real possibility. But we don't actually think we're ever going to experience one. Something might happen in the future, apparently, but it's not going to happen to me, is it? One writer expresses the problem very clearly. He puts it like this. The great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. And I think I'm probably too much of an indifferent nobody. We're rarely indifferent on a Sunday. I, I can play a fantastic game on a Sunday. But it's so easy to be indifferent at other times. See, if, if we believed what Zephaniah said last of all, I think our lives would just be very different. It's the third thing. The Lord's judgment is dreadful. You see, clearly the people of Jerusalem were, were indifferent to the, the judgment that had been promised back in Manasseh's day. Uh, it's a new king now. Josiah's on the throne. Everything's going to be all right. Zephaniah reminds them in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. And within 30 years, their city was destroyed. Many of them were slaughtered. The rest were carried off into exile. The great day of the Lord was near. And then in verse 14, he, he says, it's, I think probably translated slightly inaccurately in our version, not the cry on the day of the Lord is bitter, but listen, the day of the Lord is bitter. You see, back in verse 7, he said, be silent, hush. You're idle chattering about things that don't matter. And now listen. Listen what it's going to be like when I come in judgment. The Lord Jesus says something similar in Luke 12. You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And we're to make no mistake about the nature of that day. And so verse 15 the day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. It's an event on a global scale. Did you see how many times the day is pit mentioned? Six times. It's creation all over again. But this isn't the beginning. This is the dreadful day of the end. And there's only one criteria that brings God's righteous anger against people. Verse 17, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against their Lord. Against you, you only have I sinned, said David. They've treated God as though he wasn't God. They've sinned by thinking they could rule their own life. Sinned in our complacency. Sin by treating his love and faithfulness, his sovereign goodness as 
things that we could take without ever responding. Sin by worshipping creation rather than the creator. By believing that we're safe in the present and our future is just going to be like this forever. That the biggest trauma we face in life is Brexit. That's the only thing we need to worry about. That's the biggest change that could happen in our society. But the wages of sin is death. And the Bible doesn't mince its words, does it? Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. We're supposed to be afraid. We're not supposed to be able to joke about hell and judgment. We live, though, as verse 18 was true, as neither will their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of God's wrath. We live as though they'll save us from everything, whereas in fact they'll save us from nothing. Because in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Not, not God's jealousy. It's not, not like the petty jealousy we suffer from. You know, they've got something better than me and I want it. Now this is the the holy jealousy of a God who's made all things. We sang it, didn't we? You are holy, you are holy. It's a lovely ditty tune, but God's holiness is a terrifying reality. He deserves our worship because of it. He is the one who has the right that we live for him and nothing else. But whose experience is that we reject him and live for ourselves. He is jealous for his own name and for his glory. A jealous anger that no one will escape the whole earth. So so let me ask you, are you listening? Listening to the reality of the future? Listening to this good word from your loving Heavenly Father about what it will be like to stand before him as judge? Because I think there are, there are five, five simple applications. I'm not going to spell them out to you. Here are the five applications. The Lord's judgment is real. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Sin is very serious. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that? Complacency is spiritually lethal. Is that you? Is that someone you can think of now? Do do you believe that? Are you encouraging them? Are you warning them? Wealth and property aren't important. Did you live like that? Do you believe that? And lastly, and most importantly, that only Jesus can save people. Because look back at verse 7 of chapter 1 with me again. Look at the second half of that verse. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. There is another sacrifice the Lord prepared, isn't there? The sacrifice of his one and only precious son. 
And there is another people that he has consecrated. Not consecrated and set aside for destruction under his judgment because of their disobedience, but but consecrated and made holy. How? Because Jesus died for them. Because they've been washed clean in his blood. His blood poured out in judgment upon our sin. His blood shed in our place. See, the only answer to the dreadful day of God's wrath was the dreadful day of the cross, where love and wrath meet in the person of Jesus Christ. So we who are guilty can be declared innocent. So let me end where I began. Here's my problem. I think here's the problem. Probably of a lot of Christians in the West. We live in comfort, without real persecution, believing the lie of our world that it's going to go on forever. You see, I don't think that this view of the world shapes my daily desires. I don't think it shapes many of our daily desires, the the reality of the judgment to come. Here's, I think, the view of the Christian life that, that a lot of us have. It's the world is going to go on forever, roughly as it is. And what really matters now is that I can live a happy and secure, content life in it. And therefore, I know God loves me, even though I failed him. And I can go back to that day in, day out. And that's brilliant, and I'm secure. And so when I die as a happy old person, I'll go to heaven, and that's a bonus. I think that's a lot of Christians' view of the world. But that view of the world is a lie. That's a convenient view of the world for our complacency. It's not what God says. See, what God says is there is a day of judgment coming upon the whole of creation. My righteous anger that that I've held back since Genesis 3 will one day be seen in all mankind standing before me and giving account of their lives. But but in my great love, I have ordained a plan of salvation before the creation of the world that culminated in fulfillment in my precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has borne the horror of Zephaniah 1, himself for all his people on the cross. So if you will repent and believe in him, you can come into his kingdom. And live every day with him as your king. Worshipping him because you realize what he has done for you. Set free by the power of his spirit. Living within your heart. And looking forward to the day that you will see him face to face. Knowing that the only reason that the day of judgment has not come. Is that other people might come to Jesus. And so you tell them about him. And you plead with them to follow him. And you warn those who are drifting from him because he is your life. It's a slightly different worldview, isn't it? And I think my problem is that I don't long for God's justice enough because I don't really love the world that much. And I don't long for God's glory to be revealed because I don't love God that much. And I don't long for Jesus to return because I don't really love him that much and I'm more excited about what's going on in my life than I am seeing the son of God face to face and that's what makes us exactly all the people of Zephaniah's day 
to the Lord says to us in all the things that are going through our heads. Be silent. Stop your pointless chatter about fashion and money and property. The day of the Lord is near. And listen. Listen. It's coming. And it's coming quickly. Do you believe that? Let's pray together.